welcome to another episode of Muddy for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. Yes, we're back with a full show. Today, we're going to be diving into all things K-pop. Well, actually, Sam and the slightly mysterious Kara from the Idol Cast podcast, which is all about K-pop. Well, K-, K and J-pop. It's important. Very, very cool like niche podcast. Uh, Sam had the opportunity to interview Kara, and so you'll be hearing that interview. But as we sometimes do on this show, we wanted to go ahead and just uh, have a little discussion before you hear that interview. Yeah, I mean, this is something that, that we've talked about for a while or wanted to do for a while, Saxon, right? Like, you know, most of our coverage is on the American, Anglo-American music industry. And, and clearly, like, that, that industry has huge global power. And so it makes sense that, that we cover it a lot. It's also... <laughs> As, as you'll hear in the beginning of, of the interview, like the things we're most comfortable with, like I, I am so out of my depth in K-pop because there's just so much to know and I know none of it. So um, dear listener, like if I'm just like wrong or uh, you, you have alternate takes, like please hit us up and let us know how we are wrong about K-pop. We are very much learning and very much like down to be learning and, and i think that this more generally right is that um covering these other music industries um bollywood springs to mind potentially like like some of like the niger pop industry brazil egypt these other major hubs that are like really not just like domestic but international major music industry producers just have different ways of of, of of being of, of being structured different ways of organizing systems of exploitation that I think really shed light uh, via comparison on what's going on in the music industry now a lot in the same ways that like thinking about what was happening in the 20s or 50s sheds light on what's happening now so I just feel like this is like the first I hope <laughs> of a cup of, of numerous conversations about k-pop but about just like more non-western music industries kind of writ large so I guess to like kick things off, um, let's just talk about this music video from 2009 from a K-pop group called TVXQ! I think that group has like four different names depending on what country they're in, but... it It is like a five-minute song almost, and it's like 15 different songs stitched together and mixes like new metal with like destiny's child or something it's the most epic thing i've ever fucking seen (laughs) and like the video with them like doing like what i can only describe as if the movie the crow was a synchronized dance routine (laughs) oh god yeah that's a good one yeah hell yeah my god it like we we will definitely post a link to this because it is just absolute maximalism like beyond any like you know boslerman eat your fucking heart out like <laughs> it's so good and and i, I actually think that's like I a think. really you know that's the thing and i think that's actually a really good place to start <laughs> like a, a discussion about this because like one of the things um that was really like like a, a pleasure of doing some of the the research for this was um hearing some bits and pieces of of, of k-pop um and as you'll hear, like K-pop is not synonymous with Korean popular music generally. Um, it's kind of a specific export-oriented aspect of this broader music economy with kind of its own rules and own dynamics. And like you said, Saxon, it's like because it's very much uh, 
one of the purest examples of like show business I've ever seen has no problems borrowing like this is Lincoln Park and this is corn and this is Destiny's Child this is the crow we're gonna put them all together and like see what happens and there's like a again in this like hyper maximalist like you said like super precision like precision machine tool fitted like pop package and and honestly i think that like i the k-pop i have heard which is pulling from more modern musical trends i've often like uh had a little bit more problem or a little bit more trouble maybe like enjoying these wild maximalist juxtapositions and somehow like this space of like hearing 10 year or 15 year old k-pop like in doing research for this and hearing 15 year old k-pop and hearing some of the same kind of moves (laughs) That, that still define K-pop today, but just with a different set of musical references somehow allowed me to to enjoy it in its like glorious, over-the-top, beautiful, cheekboned fashion. I mean, I, I can't even begin to describe just how absolutely insane this video is. I It just kept going and going, and then there would be like a weird bridge that would be like a completely different kind of music, like slightly like Bollywood-esque meets dance hall, and then back into like early 2000s style just straight up pop music chorus and then into like weird crow-esque like new metal pop music it was just absolutely insane i'm thinking to myself also yeah the precision and the perfection as well is like such a great point because i'm like watching this thinking this must have taken like as long as it takes to like film like a full-length movie because there was also just so many different scenes and so many different dance scenes and like it was just oh my god it was it was just amazing the production of this is just talk about like yeah show business to the max like wow <laughs> and that was like 15 years ago and and the thing is that's also like very much not an expert here um and it's one of those like uh uh dives into something where you're like the more you learn the more you realize how much you're not an expert like that's not the craziest k-pop music video it's not the most elaborate k-pop music video there are probably a hundred videos as out there and as intense that have been produced by these different idol groups. Um, Some of which are like, there's a major idol group that was 13 people on rollerblades. (laughs) There's a, there's a a major video where everyone is just, it's one, it's a one shot video and everyone is on wheelies. Like, you know, those, the sneakers with the wheels in the back. So the whole dance is like them doing dance moves and then like wheelie dances. It's like the, (laughs) the showbiz precision is is yeah, like you said, it's boggles boggles the mind. Yeah, it's a huge business. Yeah, and, and and it can do this because it is it's a it's a production machine in, in in a way that I think my understanding is in K-pop and especially in kind of more modern export oriented K-pop that um, as we talk about in, in the interview, there's kind of um this segment of the music industry develops very intentionally over time starting in the mid 90s when uh kind of the the korean government and korean business sector decide to really push into cultural content as kind of like a almost like a high value added product that makes you more money in the long run than cars because you can move as i said you know you can move a car factory but it's very hard to move hollywood (laughs) you can even move filming but it's very hard to move like the knowledge networks of hollywood and so actually like (laughs) they they uh i read i read an article about this where they kind of jurassic park hit in the 90s 
and they realized that Jurassic Park made the United States more money than something like a million cars being sold. And they were like, oh, <laughs> like maybe that's an industry we'd like to be in. And so yeah. as this industry is kind of oriented, and again, because um, it's important to note that like Korea is like a, a fairly small market. Korea's, South Korea, um, which I'm saying Korea, but South Korea uh, has around 50 million people who live there. So it's a third of the size of Japan. It's smaller than Vietnam. I think it's smaller than Cambodia. It's obviously way smaller than China. So it's possible to make money in the domestic market, but like the export market was, and especially like the regional, it's much smaller, like half the size of the Philippines, for example. Like the regional export market was such a rich prize. And so in, in some ways, as um, the industry began to orient towards this export market, and it's, it's this crazy, you know, a lot of the charts in Korea are not dominated by K-pop. <laughs> K-pop is really for the K-pop community, which exists in all different parts of the world. Um, anyway, so like as these this industry is trying to figure out how it can make popular music that appeals in all these ways, I think it's become more and more of this incredible production machine. And, and we talk about this some in the interview, but... The, one of the reasons they're able to do that kind of dancing is because they have this incredibly elaborate training system that the people who end up in these groups have often been signed at some level to the industry, you know, since they were like seven or eight. Um, by the time they, by the time they talk about A and R, right? By the time they debut, which is a word that you know it means that they're they're kind of their big first push but also is this kind of like ceremonial like now they are one of the idol groups before they're called trainees and so even though they're like making money and getting fans as trainees people know trainees and follow the trainees as they like try to debut as an idol group it's a whole it's a whole, <laughs> whole world but they'll spend something like a million dollars training these performers before they like quote unquote debut and and start making records and now admittedly in in something that will won't surprise you accent like uh, a lot of that training money is actually advances <laughs> that of course that they have to earn back money on yeah 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 they, they get the, that money back uh, if and when um, the the trainee starts making them money but like the way you get eight people precision dancing not just once but like over and over and over again for every single one of their songs and for all the live performances and on all the talk shows is you dance lessons <laughs> for years and years and years of like dance lessons and singing lessons and interview lessons and so really there is this like incredible um dedication towards like cultivating a certain kind of, of performance talent and also like cultivating now like a certain kind of a cultural capital training these people how to be digital stars and have fan bases and engage with fans so that they can make content that the fans want i mean it's also just so fascinating because it's like, it's like developing like a tv show or like you know some reality tv show yeah i mean it's it's not and 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 again um not to give up like kind of like all the 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 insights of the interview but like that's i think that the crucial thing i i came away from this with um is that k-pop is not producing music 
exactly, or at least not producing music the way the American music industry is producing music. They're producing cultural content that includes music as a major part of it, but just doesn't align with the categories that the U.S.-based industries are used to. And in some ways, this is something that we've talked about a lot, like with TikTok or with um, potentially like the metaverse or Web3 in the ways that like, it seems like artists are moving into away from being like just doing music into doing music as one of the things that they do, this kind of broader celebrity culture. And K-pop is really, really good at figuring out ways to do that. This industry is really good at figuring out ways to do that in a way that I think um, yeah. is definitely on the minds of the people who are trying to, to figure out what comes next in the American music industry. You know, you read these articles about like the metaverse and it's like, that's K-pop. K-pop is yeah. the metaverse. Yeah. It's this complicated, all the most, all immersive world with all of these different like merchandising touch points yeah. where people yeah. are defining their identities in online and offline ways around these social communities. And it's, it kind of proves that maybe you don't need crypto to do it. <laughs> it like just, good old fashioned like message boards and then merch is does it fine but like in a lot of ways that kind of alternate orientation towards what relating to cultural production or culture industry is um i think is like got yeah gotta be on the minds of people figuring out what comes next with the internet here which is something that we oftentimes discuss and like why we are sometimes hesitant about looking into our crystal ball it kind of becomes inevitable when we begin to talk about these more uh, contemporary topics in which we cover so i think that's a good like introduction to the interview you're about to hear um once again this is sam and kara from the idol cast talking all things k and j-pop this week to have Kara from the idol cast and if you haven't checked that out it is a podcast about korean and japanese popular music about kind of idol music for maybe lack of that might be the incorrect term but lack of a, a better term idol music um and the idol music industry um and it's an incredibly detailed and fascinating and informative perspective on an industry that that's really complicated and really important. And so we're really excited to have you on. Welcome to Money for Nothing. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited. I've been listening to the podcast for a while, so it's it's going to be fun. I can actually talk back instead of just talking to my, uh, you know, car stereo. Yeah, no shouting shouting at us on the car stereo. Apparently that's <laughs> not an uncommon reaction to the show, which I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, and, and we're really excited. This is the, the first, you know, let's kind of say this up, up front. And um, is this is our kind of our first baby steps into something that we've been wanting to cover for a long time, which is um, a variety of really other, other non-Anglo-American centers of the global music industry, which 
in there, as, as you'll hear today, there are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of things that are really differently, different, maybe some like a similar pie, but, but sliced along different lines, depending, depending on the situation. And, and, and so I, just like upfront, like <laughs> I've never done a podcast about something I know so little about. <laughs> so I apologize in advance for a, my ignorance about this, this incredibly complicated in some ways, like I would say, like intimidatingly complicated world of cultural production. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's actually it'll make better listening, maybe for people that also don't know anything that you don't know anything, because maybe people have had the same questions and just you know haven't haven't been able to ask them. I, I think I want to start from what is. And what is not K-pop? Because I think that people misuse it as a term a, a fair bit. That it it's not the entire Korean music industry. And it's not a, really a genre of music. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. It's So K-pop is both... It, it is Korean music in that it's what's exported to us. So I think people... I don't know if you don't know anything I think it's you would just assume that it's Korean popular music but in a lot of ways k-pop is really like this sort of gated universe almost like a little mini WWE wrestling arena where these groups of you know teenagers young adults kind of compete against each other for the prize of you know, uh, awards and record sales. And, um, it's, it's like a little Thunderdome almost, but, um, you know, looking at it from outside, it's, yeah, it, it kind of is just very nonsensical, but, but K-pop is, so K-pop is music, but it's not music. It's, you know, pretty people but it's also more than that it's parasocial relationships it's it's a lot of things all kind of rolled up into one one big thing one big industry and and now it's actually sort of branching out into games and gaming and apps and um all that kind of stuff too so the tentacles keep growing (laughs) And it's, and it's like a very specific product or set of products from a very specific, like you said, like a gated universe, like a part of the Korean entertainment industry. And and, and what listening to some of the, the shows, especially um, you have this kind of, you know, series of, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 kind of history of K-pop episodes at the beginning of, of, of your podcast with this, this thing that like, of course, this makes sense because it's, you know, it's an export oriented form of music but these moments where k-pop is not the majority of the korean pop charts (laughs) yeah and actually i mean that's today that's right now k-pop so maybe it's maybe it would be better if i just kind of started sort of um with where k-pop came from sure Um, yeah so okay so k-pop kind of grows out of the this push for the 1988 Seoul Olympics. So Korea before, I mean, it's kind of hard to remember now, but kind of in years past, um, it had this image of kind of this gray dictatorship 
um, a lot of violence against citizens, you know, this sort of very unpleasant, very kind of beaten down population with the, you know, the, the military dictator. And, you know, Korea really wanted to move to change that. And so they, you know, petitioned to get the 1988 Olympics. This was going to be their big coming out on kind of the global stage. And part of that process was sort of this very fast modernization of just like everything, right? And so they they kind of just airdropped this teen pop music like into the culture. <laughs> and so you have all these um, guys who had been writing, they have this domestic genre called trot, which is... Um, I mean, I guess the closest equivalent would be like a schlager music if you're in Europe or um, like country music. Like it's just a very domestic kind of country, like, you know, down home, like this is for the folks, like genre, right? So you have these guys who'd been writing this stuff suddenly tasked with writing peppy teen pop. And they kind of borrow all of these um, sort of electronic dance sounds from Japan and throw some trot melodies on top and this is like the new teen pop and um you know kids like it okay but this is where the sort of seeds of where the industry comes from and it's out of this sort of teen music that um you start to get like the big uh k-pop agencies that we know today but those seeds it comes out of this sort of um, push to modernize and just sort of just dropped in but um in korea k-pop kind of remains this very like teen music like it's for teenagers like teenagers are the people <laughs> that listen to it um, and you do have older fans obviously but the main audience is teen girls for the most part and it, it also you know it, it, it's it's like just taking even a step back right and really thinking about the like the complex <laughs> geopolitical position of South Korea because I mean it it you know in a lot of pop music globally and especially in a lot of the stories that we've covered in this show right the mainstream of American popular music is usually the dominant is, is either either the dominant influence and that's just not true right it's the main i mean american the american mainstream like if you listen to to, to k-pop like michael jackson is clearly very important for a lot of artists maybe several generations back but the most important like interlocutor almost is popular japanese music. it's definitely very very important to the story um and you know as is sort of american like black urban uh, music uh, just coming from like the military bases, right? But yeah, course, yeah, yeah. But Korea is interesting in that um, one of the other things that they were known for, like back in the day, was bootlegging, right? Like that's where you would get your like bootleg CDs and bootleg vinyl. Um, and so you would have these just markets, black markets of bootleg vinyls and and cassettes and all this stuff from from europe from japan especially i mean japan is so close um and then you know from the u.s as well and so you get these just sort of random assortments of of things um and they were they also had these things called um they were called killboard uh, cassettes and 
the you just have like bootleggers to sort of plop a bunch of different songs onto these cassettes and you know sort of sell these mixes um and they were called killboard killboard kill k-i-l um means road and then board Mm -hmm. is short for billboard so it's like the like so it's just like these roadside hawkers right like selling their selling their like billboard cassettes essentially but yeah like if you got a song on like a popular mix like you were in but you know it's just one of these things where the there were just so many different influences coming from all over the place and they they get kind of jumbled up and um there's this great memoir from this japanese um sort of musician kind of scenester called hasegawa yohei and he writes about coming to seoul in the 90s and just being like shocked at what like teen girls were listening to and it was like you know, he's like, teen girls in Korea just love power ballads for some reason. <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> they were listening to like, um, like metal, like power ballads. And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't get it. But um, yeah, so it's it's just a very different, it, it's like they weren't, you know, I think we do kind of assume that everyone around the world is listening to the same stuff that we are, you know, Madonna and Michael Jackson and the, like the big influences that we have here but um yeah like in they were listening to like um you know Kondo Masahiko in the discos and um yeah like the, their own domestic artists um in the trot genre like Cho Young Pill so um just a very very different mix of influences and like I think sometimes you can especially with the k-pop that's export oriented Mm -hmm. you know a lot of that stuff is written by westerners or um they're using the same kind of uh scandinavian songwriters um it it may get like mixed a little differently but um i think some of the stuff that's more popular kind of globally than in korea does have that more global sound like on purpose Yeah. yeah 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 but but so so you know so if we have this you know if you think about I, again, this, you know, the post-Korean War, 20, 30 years of, of relatively repressive military dictatorship that ends in, in, in 88, right? And then you know, this kind of explosion of teen culture and um, this wild mix of different, like, kind of, you know, black market musics from all over the world. But, but, but also, I mean, there... You, you know, and again, I'm kind of going from from the, the story that, that you lay out in your, in your podcast is that in terms of the kind of model, um, this kind of Japanese idol model becomes I- incredibly important. So I'm wondering if you could t- t- just talk a little bit about that. Um, and I guess, uh, like, I guess J- Johnny and, and, and Associates. <laughs> oh, yes. Johnny's and Associates. Johnny's um, and Associates. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're a massive force in Japan. Yeah, the the top selling artist uh, this year, twenty twenty two, so far is this group called Snowman, um, Johnny's and Associates. But yeah, so yeah, so Japan is like literally, you know, literally next door. Um, you you can take a ferry from uh, Japan to Korea in like three hours. Um, I've done it. It's a very fun ride. Um, so yeah so when they're kind of forming this new teen pop yeah they look over to japan they kind of just pluck things um like oh this works this works this works and you what you get is like um they they kind of look over see what's really popular see what's 
what works and sort of adopt this model of the idol group, um, especially coming from Johnny's and Associates Map, who was like the biggest boy band, like of all time ever. You know, you think New Kids on the Block were big, Backstreet Boys were big. No, nobody is bigger than SMAP. Um, yeah, like there is, a, I think, period of years, like from the late 90s to the early 2000s, I think every guy like under the age of 25 would have had um, like this SMAP haircut. <laughs> like It's just everywhere. Um, so SMAP... Um, they're basically the most important and most popular and like biggest idol group kind of ever. Um, and they sort of, they come out of Johnny's and Associates in the early nineties. Um, and they're, they really struggle. They kind of, they're debuted during the middle of essentially like a, an idol ice age, right? No one is like, nobody cares. And they're kind of forced to make their own success, which they do by becoming comedians and actors. And um, they absolutely explode in about 95, 96. Um, and their television show, which is like a combination, it was called Smap Smap. And it was like basically, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Smap Smap. Um, and it, it's basically a combination of sketch comedy, sort of like a Saturday Night Live, right? Plus, um, they had a cooking, live cooking, like Iron Chef style slash interview segment with a guest, um, Bistro Smap. Um, they would do a live, <laughs> <laughs> live performance with... Wait, it was always cooking slash interview? Yeah, yeah. It was a cooking, like cooking, sorry, cooking competition slash interview. And, <laughs> and, and then um, they'd have like live performance. Um, they would do like special episodes where they may go on like... Um, trips or whatever but this show ran and like I would say like dominated like crushed it in the ratings for like 20 years um so when they finally uh they they kind of for various reasons uh contract related reasons um sort of ended ended the SMAP project in it was 2016 um but they were just massively influential and they're still like the five, there were five members or there were six, but five members of SMAP, um, are still hugely popular stars in Japan, like very popular stars in Japan. And I think if people, I think video game fans may know Kimura Takia, uh, who's, I mean, I think he was voted like most handsome guy in Japan, like 12 years running. Um, but he's the model for some game I don't know, but um, gamers might know him. So yeah, but but they like like it was kind of a joke that they were bad at singing and bad at dancing. Um, but yet, you know, they have I think the third highest selling single of all time, like in Japan. People know SMAP songs like they're if if anybody is sort of equivalent of like knowing the Beatles or knowing Michael Jackson like it's SMAP like you just know SMAP they're like in the in the cultural consciousness in a weird way like they're not being particularly well known for singing and dancing but being particularly well known for being entertaining and lovable and uh I guess like tr trying really hard too, right? They're yeah. not, yeah. They're like they're really giving like the singing and the dancing their all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, um, and it's not like they were bad. You know, the the you know the joke was that they were bad, but they actually you know Smap were. Um, I you know I always like their songs, um, and they they worked with some pretty amazing songwriters too. Like to the end, I, I thought they were always very innovative. They were like one of the first um, sort of pop groups to really sort of capitalize on like this should be okay sound. And um, if you go back and listen to some of their like early '90s stuff, it's it's um, it's it's pretty forward looking, and I think they kind of stayed that way through their career. But yeah, they weren't they weren't necessarily known for like outstanding vocals or dance <laughs> and, and so re- really quickly just like a, an idol group yeah. just for like those who don't know i mean it like like a a boy band it, it covers some of it it seems like yeah. but not the whole thing of it <laughs> yeah and a lot of this does come from smap originally um and and so these idol these idol groups they they're kind of um they operate as as music groups you know they put out singles they put on albums they do concerts but there's another part of this a bigger part where they also um you know they appear on tv they're actors they're um you know they're on um, what they call variety shows or talk shows um you know you may see them doing the news like they're they're kind of spread out through other parts of the entertainment industry as well and um it's this kind of like you get to know them as these personalities as well as kind of consuming them as pure music product and i was actually thinking about the best kind of american parallel and i think it might be like the disney stars like if you think about somebody like miley cyrus like back when she was hannah montana like that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, she is putting out music, but she's also an actor, you know, but she's also kind of this personality and it's just the way that these, these sort of categories really form into like one, one thing. And these idols really do become kind of like personalities in and of themselves. They're like the reality stars as well as being um musicians like this like how i don't know like the i think all my references are really dated but like you know like the real housewives people talk about them using their first names um and and people treat idols the same way and and i think that that that's really i mean in the broader context of music industries i think it's really interesting because in some ways i think that that disney connection is is uh is exactly right because in many ways like Disney's like this company that at some level is doing kind of like an old school approach just with like flawless execution continuing into the 21st century right like in the if you think about like your your classic like imagination of like a 1950s style American entertainer right they sing, they act, they dance, they show up on Johnny Carson, they do nightclub performances, they're in Hollywood movies and it's not one thing or the other thing right there's not like oh i'm a musician and therefore i do not act which i think starts to happen to a certain extent as these like um partially as like maybe like the generation divide of the 60s at least like in the u.s like splits people into more definitive different groups but in some ways it's like a very um it's almost like a different seems to me like like a kind of different orientation towards like what 
a, a performer entails almost. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's that's a good way to put it. And yeah, though, like those kinds of entertainers. I mean, we do have them to an extent, but it's a it definitely is like a an old fashioned model. I mean, maybe somebody like what Barbara Streisand. Sure. Um, you know, kind of hits all those sort of boxes. And the other thing with idols is that in Korea, um, they're not considered like they're at the bottom of the entertainment heap, really. <laughs> There's they're you know, they're not they're not known necessarily for their singing or dancing. They're not considered like the best actors, the best uh rappers. Like they're they're kind of at the bottom of the entertainment heap and kind of have to work their way up through through the ranks and so um sort of longtime fans know that there are like these markers of idol success you know these these teenagers debut and then there's these markers of like oh so and so got their first role in a, a tv drama you know so and so uh got added to the cast of this uh reality show um, and these are like markers of success, like escaping the idle ghetto and like getting into the mainstream entertainment world. Wait, so, but, so just, just to, yeah, to, yeah. Cause this is so fascinating. <laughs> um, so like when you say like, they're not the best, you know, singers, dancers, rappers, mm-hmm. like idols as a category aren't. Yes. Correct. So it's kind yeah. of like, you know, like certain idols are good dancers, but most idols are not. And then like, so people, as they get more successful, kind of, like you say, like escape that general categorization. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so the other thing that you said there, that's, that's, (laughs) I think worth taking time on is you said when they debut, because my sense is, is again, listening to you, like debut means something differently and something very specific in the idol world. Yeah, and but and it's not just idols. I think this is an Asian industry uh thing in general. So making your debut is like a big deal. Um and a lot of times it's um putting out your first song is like your debut. So like and and you can also have if you're like a, a band. Like so like bands in Japan, they may debut um like on an indie label and then have a major label debut and like that major label debut is like a big milestone marker um so it's basically just like putting out your first song and that's your debut song and that's going to be like people are going to call back to that and it's going to be like that's your marker like that this is your calling card it's your first song and um yeah it's a big deal no that that makes total sense but but my sense is that it's a little bit you know in your podcast, right, you talk about groups that are signed to a major management company, are kind of like kicking around the industry, appearing on like variety shows and television shows and and, and getting fans and I guess presumably performing live, but like not being allowed to debut and with like all this kind of, you know, inside baseball complexity around, you know, younger people debuting ahead of older ones and the older groups being upset about that. And, and it just seems like, um, you know, in Western context, you know, your debut album is a a big push, but there's a kind of, um, almost like it seems like there's like a ceremonial aspect (laughs) to the debut. Or maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding, though. 
No, no, I think you're right. I, I've never... See, this is interesting for me, too, because I'm so sort of steeped in this that that it never occurred to me that that was kind of strange. But yeah, so a lot of these companies, they're, um, you know, they're management companies, but they're, they're kind of more than that. They act as sort of these sort of umbrella companies and you they gather these trainees, right? So you have all of these trainees under this, um, this label, whether it's SM, YG, JYP, HYBE, they'll have all these trainees. Like how many trainees and are we talking about? Oh, I mean, I don't know. Um, like, I mean, well, like a hundreds or like 10,000? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not 10,000. Probably not. I mean, I guess depending on the label. I mean, dozens? That's a good question. I actually don't know. But it's, it's uh, you know, a, a fair few, um, depending on how big the company is. And, um, you know, in the past a lot of times in k-pop in j-pop it's it's different um but in korea you know that they, they would be paying essentially paying for training and um racking up this was one of the many dark side of k-pop scandals but you know racking up fees that they then they would have to pay back to the companies it doesn't surprise so, me and, at all you mean you mean right. that they fronted the money <laughs> and then later took it out from potential profits in ways that that are complicated and may, don't seem 100% fair. <laughs> shocked. Shocked to find out that there's gambling happening here. <laughs> in the music industry, right? In the yeah, music so I think industry. In, <laughs> imagine that. <laughs> so, so I think, you know, to some extent, these companies take on as many trainees as they can uh, for obvious reasons. But, um, yeah, and so you, you do have kind of these people who have hung around and hung around and stuck it out and they've trained and trained and trained and they see someone who's you know waltz in and you know here's this oh this 15 year old is going to debut before me and i've been here since you know i'm like 20 now it's crazy but and they'll um, have fans yeah. as trainees yes yeah they do they have fans and it's a little more clear i think in, if you are a total outsider if you um catch some of these shows um they're i'm pretty sure you can find them just streaming um they might even just put them up on youtube but they're these uh competition shows and um like produce 101 and um shows like that where they gather all, a bunch of trainees and kind of duke it out in this battle royale to like finally debut in um in a group right and um it's yeah like some of these kids come in with already like existing fan bases which is kind of crazy and then just you know just maybe establishing like the basic ontology of k-pop here <laughs> um <laughs> like when and then when they then they come out as a group there's also it it it, it seems like group is its own and, and maybe this is me just like making making too much, but I think there's some subtle differences between uh, the idea of these different groups in, in that like the the it's like a group is like a, a almost like a, a it's kind of like a team. <laughs> it's kind of like a work of like person you know art that you know a bunch of people like balancing out, and it's kind of a concept too, right? Yeah, yeah, and actually in in like Korean they do use the word team to talk about their their groups. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting the ways that, you know, different groups function differently. 
Um, and sometimes you do have groups where there's a lot of internal conflict and um, they can't, they just can't work together. But because, you know, so much is dependent, like these groups don't form themselves. Um, they're, they're formed. And so you have somebody kind of pulling the strings and um, shoving, shoving these kids together. <laughs> To, into these units and a lot of times it's not because they you know all sing so well together uh it's because of um you know they want to get the best looking group and so they'll or the um i don't know sometimes they just throw in the kid that they like the like the best or who's um likable and um you know there's there's usually a member if it's a successful group um whose skills are not you know evident if you watch them like on a music show or if you listen to them like like a song like you're like you may not understand why that member is there but then if you see them um interacting on um a reality show or um you know that that mem like the the there's like the joke about like the useless member but that useless member is usually providing some kind of like social cohesion or um, ability to to talk engagingly sure. on stage um yeah especially for the successful groups but i mean there's there's tons of unsuccessful groups uh, to look at as well and, and the thing i mean again this is just like these groups tend to be fairly large right i mean like not i mean just again correct me i could be totally wrong here but somehow mm -hmm. like in my head yeah an american boy band is around five people and it seemed like a, a lot of the popular groups are like seven to nine like there's there's like like there'll be a dancing formation in a video yeah. and then like they move and there's two more people behind them i'm like there's so many of them <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah well i think there's been kind of this um like arms race in group size i don't know how like, how else to describe it. And, it and it is complicated too because um so much of the fact that like there's all these members has to do with um things that have nothing to do with music or or anything um so there was i don't even know how many members are in some of these groups there's like a, a new boy group called treasure that has like a ton of members and um like they they get divided into like subunits and um it gets complicated very fast but it didn't used to be like this um i've been sort of deep diving for an episode i'm working on and um there was this group called top dog who debuted mm -hmm. in 2013 and a lot of the sort of press around them at that time in 2013 was like oh my god they have 13 members that's so many but now that that's like normal you know and that's only been 10 years yeah. so you know who knows what we'll get in the future but i, mean, I do want to yeah. like just point out and check myself that i was like i can't imagine knowing seven group members but wu-tang clan has between seven and nine members and like <laughs> i know all of them so <laughs> i you know it's it's all about perspective yeah. and i just want to flag that blind spot for myself yeah well and and uh, you know a lot of times depending on on the group like not everyone knows all the members anyway so especially for these big ones there's a lot of different levels of fandom but um yeah the group like the group thing it has to do with um again like that parasocial mm -hmm. relationship like more members there's more um 
there's more merch to sell there's more um photo cards there's more um you know each member can get their own little sort of fandom going um it's like one of those things where i think somebody has decided you know that this is the best best practices is you know you want to get a lot of fans you have a lot of members and 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 you know kind of going back to what you're saying about kind of the this um all-inclusive media push (laughs) that these these bands have right enough that it's it's worthwhile to have members whose primary talent is being the goofy one when they're on a talk show (laughs) potentially yeah absolutely um yeah and so i mean i I, another major part about you know this is that about about kind of idol groups as, as a phenomenon is is the extent to which yeah, like you're saying, these parasocial relationships and the the kind of um, seeming like the constant play between kind of like forward facing performances and then like behind the scenes material as something that that I think that it, this was kind of SMAP generated or kicked off too, right? I think you said like uh, in one of the episodes of like D, like really making use of the DVD format. <laughs> Yeah, the DVD format, but then also SMAP, I think, um, really took this sort of idea of letting fans in behind the curtain to like new levels. And um, this really has become such an important part of being a fan of idols is that you, you know, you become sort of a mini expert in concert production and how these... um, how like some of this sausage is made kind of behind the scenes because that's what you know the the idols will come on to um instagram live or these other platforms and just sort of talk to fans about like what they did during the day and like this show and that show and the you know how how is the new album shaping up and all of this very sort of like really making you feel like you're on the inside and like you're a team Mm -hmm. right and smap one of the things they did that i thought was like it really blew my mind um, was that they had like before you, you had like these live streaming, this ability to live stream. I mean, SMAP live streamed sort of a, a drunken like <laughs> holiday party on TV in like 1999 <laughs> or 2000. Right. And they basically they had the lot. It was like live cameras to set up in the, in this apartment. And they come in and they, you know, just sit around and they like, they're calling fans on the phone, you know, are you watching? Are you watching? And the fans like, oh my God, like, hi, <laughs> like it's, you know, and this is like in the year 2000, you know, nobody was doing that. Right. Like it's, yeah, it's just, um, and now everyone does it. Uh, yeah. SMAP, um, they really were the template for, for a lot of what we see today. Yeah, I mean that's really really interesting. Like what you said made so much sense. Is that the 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 influence functions differently because they're not selling music and or not selling music exactly the way that a lot of musicians are selling music. I mean, you know, in this moment of like uh, increasing the importance of visual media, increasing the importance of social media, like a lot of musicians, you know, Lizzo is not just selling music either, but. No, the point that that's something different, I mean, and that kind of fits with, you know, at least kind of uh, anecdotally, like my experience of people I know who have gotten really into this world, right? Is it's, in some ways, it's like, uh, 
their you know their music listening is replaced by a different it's clearly music is part of it but like a different kind of artistic activity um that they engage with really strongly and it's almost like they're kind of like just like reorient towards a different type of type of 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 set of like aesthetic behaviors and i could see that like you know you could have a huge community of people engaging with that and then in some ways not that aligning in complicated ways with more traditional like the way that the the u.s music industry tends to function but but also you know there's that and then there's also your second point i think is brilliant too which is that it wouldn't surprise me if you know if these artists have have developed really effective ways of structuring or, or performing identities online in ways that open up a variety of you know touch points for monetization I could see a lot of artists in other music economies following that though how you do that in a music economy that is where like the value of uh you know certain discourses of like personal authenticity function differently or ones where there's a lot less of the kind of like Motown style training that seems to be really an an integral part of like the trainee to debut (laughs) pipeline system Oh, yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you see if you sort of go back and look at the kind of founding of these companies, these big K-pop companies, is that at a certain point, they all switch. They make a a really concerted effort um, to switch from sort of uh, producing artists to producing idols. And um, there's a great clip. I can send it to you, actually, if you want to link it somewhere of JYP, of JYP Entertainment, um, talking about this in 2009. And he, in English, um, he speaks English. Um, and he, he's, you know, just flat out says, you know, he's like, I realized I can't sell music like we used to. So we're not going to sell music. We're going to sell stars. And right there, that's, I mean, that is what k-pop idols are they're stars that's great they have that like said flat out is is amazing yeah and it's one of those things that's just been i I think just buried um you know but he yeah he said it like at a music conference (laughs) but yeah you're, you're never gonna you're never gonna hear uh journalists say it um there was a really ridiculous interview with blackpink in rolling stone and it was like, and maybe this explains some of the discordant coverage of K-pop in American or, or other English language outlets because they come at this as if these are musicians. You know, Blackpink are not musicians. You know, Blackpink are not rappers. They're not singers. They're stars, you know? Yeah, and, and it kind of makes you question, you know, and I do a lot of work on... Um, uh, entertainment before like professionally right right my dissertation is about entertainment before recording um and you get a lot of people who are like that right the most important thing about a singer or many singers is not how well they sing it's like can you make an audience love you with a song which is actually it's like related to singing it's related to music but it's not the same thing um and i could see like you know given the way that music has been kind of like ideologically constructed especially in the united states like 
having groups that just uh where those lines are just drawn differently about like what they're doing and then having them read as like this kind of musician where it's like, well, no, they're not, it's not. And that's not knocking them either. It's they're doing a different art form at some level, you could argue. Yeah, exactly. I I really think it is. And, um, that I used to like back, back in the day, like 2012, 2013, when a lot of these groups were kind of crossing over, um, Big Bang, uh, Crayon Pop, um, who opened for Lady Gaga, like the Wonder Girls, um, you know, they, they kind of crossed over as pop groups, which I think it, it fit, it was an, it was an okay fit, right? They were sort of niche, um, there were these pop groups, but I think the groups coming out today, um, are just that much more specialized as idols. Um, I think back... 10, 15 years ago, there was still a lot more crossover with the the regular music industry. So you did have mm-hmm. more idols that, that could sing, that could um, rap and, um, you know, write, write songs. And like, there was a lot more crossover with the regular music industry. But today, um, the groups are just so much more specialized towards this sort of idol, this stardom, this um, parasocial relationship that I think it, it is harder to, it is harder to judge. So kind of thinking about that pivot more generally is what's kind of crazy. And, and like, correct me if, if, I've, if I've misunderstood this, one of the craziest things about K-pop as a phenomenon is that it seems like it was, this is one of the most successful pieces of like governmental semi-governmental or societal planning that has ever existed yeah um yeah i guess in a way maybe the best way to think about it is there was this great article in the financial times a couple months ago about um the boom right now in south korea of building art museums Mm -hmm. and so they're just building these art museums. Um, and right now they're having trouble filling them with art <laughs> and also with, uh, you know, paying uh, customers. But, but they're just, they're, they're like, okay, we need, uh, we need an art, we need art museums. You know, this is the next step in becoming like this, uh, you know, sort of cultural power. So let's, let's do it. We're going to build these art museums. Um, and I think K-pop s- sort of has that as its foundation where they're like, okay, well, we need this pop scene. So here we go. <laughs> we're just going to, we're going to build it and then we're going to fill it with uh, groups. And that's what happened. Well, it's also, I mean, if you think about it from like kind of like a like a, a very straight political economy lens, I mean, it's absolutely, you know, it's a, it's a, a brilliant pivot turn, right? So like, Korea, my understanding, and again, this is by no means a Korean historian either, right? But like my sense is that Korea modernizes, like quote, in huge print modernizes, right? Um, with like kind of industrial capacity, like building semiconductors, building cars are the th- probably two famous outputs. And they're able to do it cheaper and better um, than a lot of competitors. And they're able to kind of explode into the global market because of that. But there is, you know, 
as we've seen, you know, as competition in, in, in production in Asia got more intense and as more economies come online able to do that, that competitive advantage starts to wane. But, like, the the competitive advantage that, like, K-pop gives you is much, it's much harder <laughs> to have, like, I don't know, it's easier to move a factory to Vietnam <laughs> than it is to move a music industry to Vietnam, for example. It like and so and it's right. It, my sense is like it's it's been tremendously profitable for this export oriented music economy for for Korea. I mean, like you know, I don't know if these statistics are real, but like BTS being like a five billion dollar a year corporation—that's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it it is. Um, I mean, it's still a small. I mean, it's. I think the the monetary value of K-pop you know, as an industry kind of gets overvalued or, or played up, I think, um, in the press compared to things like games, um, sure. and, you know, uh, TV dramas like Netflix dramas, um, and stuff like that. But I do think that, um, they add something that you can't make in a factory, which is, um, glamour, soft power. Um, you know, BTS were just at the White House. I mean, it was like a, you know, just a little PR thing, but I mean... It was not clear who the most famous person in that room was with BTS <laughs> yeah, and the president. Right. You know, that's... Having having those global celebrities is not nothing. And I think that, you know, you can't underestimate um, the sort of soft power, the non-monetary value that having these global stars um, provides. But I think, um, yeah, I think definitely like the monetary thing kind of gets over overvalued. Although with the pivot into games, um, you know, that could be changing. So, but yeah, I, I do think that um, the sort of creating this industry, creating like creating this market for K-pop out of nothing, really, I think is uh, is pretty is pretty incredible when you really think about it. And you've mentioned a couple of times in this conversation about like export oriented. And I think that maybe my timing might be slightly off, but my sense is that like the crucial moment for this is, and maybe like the moment where like K and J pop or K Korean idols and Japanese idols like diverge is like in this, I don't know, 2008 to 2012 moment. Maybe I'm, I'm slightly off on my timing there, but this moment where Japan has this enormous domestic market that you can make, you know, if you're a business and you sell just to the Japanese domestic market, like you can be a big business and you can be totally happy. And that at the same moment, Korean companies in these like, you know, three, the three biggest Korean management companies really start looking for international markets very actively and start pushing towards those markets very actively yeah at 2008 to 2012 that's a pretty good uh that is a pretty pretty good pivot um and it's it is kind of striking actually if you watch the music shows in korea like sort of during that era and it sort of starts off and you'll see a, a mix of kind of the popular genres um you know, you have your, your ballad singers, you have your, um, you know, your rap and hip hop people, and then you have your idols. Um, 
and then sort of gradually everyone else falls away and the music shows almost totally reorient towards k-pop and by about you know 2013 they're k-pop shows and it's just pretty incredible when you when you like like track the trajectory but um yeah japan for whatever reason just kind of retrenches um and korea just seeing the hole in the market they just they just export um that was about so what does that look like well, there's also another piece, which not to overcomplicate things, but overcomplicate um, again. We love it. We love uh, it. <laughs> but the the other piece with Korea um, really exporting is that Bollywood in this time is also like around 2008, 2009 is also kind of reorienting, sort of almost exclusively towards. Um, like the the Indian diaspora, sort of in the West, um, the industry becomes very. It, it sort of turns away from sort of their traditional Asian markets in Southeast Asia, um, and places you know domestic markets even in India, and Korean culture products and um, K-pop kind of trickle in to fill the void. And um, I have a, a friend from Burma. Uh, who says that there's like an age line where if you're so yeah if you're above a certain age you know like Shara Khan and Amitabh Bachchan but if you're below a certain age you know um you know you know super junior (laughs) it's like there's like a dividing line but yeah and I think that piece kind of gets gets left out but yeah Japan is definitely also um so the in like the early 2000s johnny's and associates you know that big idol company were sending out idols um they were doing concerts in taiwan um even up to 2008 you know they were even doing concerts in korea which is like a big deal if you know anything about the animosity that those countries share but then yeah it kind of um you know there were still acts that did you know of course like japanese bands and stuff was still toured um around asia but like that i feel like that big push especially in the idol that pop push really kind of falls back yeah and it's important to know just like how how big (laughs) that market is right that you know korea uh, as you point out in one of the early episodes of your podcast is you know it's south korea is is, um like 50 million people um it's not it's not the biggest player and it's not the biggest country in this area so the ability to like uh to reach like a much much bigger market if you're in burma if you're in vietnam if you're in taiwan if you can crack china at all <laughs> like the, the like the sense of like the prize being there makes a is really really interesting and it makes a lot of sense yeah and and um there are like you know there there are old lines of cultural transmission sort of through asia as well and so um in the early years of like the 2000s you do get in the the late 90s to an extent um these k-pop companies the idol companies trying to send their artists to japan and part of this is yes the japanese market is like massive but also you know the old lines of cultural transmission come out of tokyo right so yeah so i mean that's part of it as well like if if so sm one of their first big stars um sm entertainment who's one of the big companies um one of their first big stars was this teen girl boa and um 
they basically pack her up and send her to <laughs> send her to Japan by herself at like 14 or 15 and like sink or, real sink or swim hours but um you know she she perseveres she pulls through but you know it's she hits Tokyo and kind of via that like people start to know her sort of around the region but um I think thanks to you know K-pop and and K-pops like real time and effort they've put in like those lines of cultural transmission have have switched in a way and I think now um you get people sending their including Japan sending idols to Seoul you know which again like talk about soft power like that's that soft power right there and so if you know if we take the story forward a little bit more right like in in part because it seems like the the like the specific uh media e- ecology of of korea of south korea you know of um you know uh, variety shows and competitions it seems like the next step is you know um and because of kind of the, the aesthetic that's developed right this like hyper stylized um in- incredibly like precision aesthetics uh, of the synchronized dance moves of the overall of the look of, of everything in some ways it's like you know if we, that was you know 2008 2012 like 2012 to 2016 to 17 all of a sudden the modern internet <laughs> drops and it seems like these groups are like perfectly situated for tumblr for instagram and then like for face you know for for tiktok in like the craziest way possible like the world has like the entire world it seems like has turned into um like a perfect vehicle for for precisely these attributes that this industry has been cultivating for like two decades now yeah absolutely and one of the things that you know the more i looked at the korean pop industry the you know the more it it always kind of feels like korea is about 10 years ahead of us <laughs> like when it comes to pop music like their first sort of viral like their like the first like rapper who like went viral like on korean internet was in 1998 right like that this like this wouldn't happen in the us for like another 10 years yeah so i, I think that that in a lot of ways um because like they're like the way that they consume music was already so perfect for like the internet age that it was a much easier fit and they adapted much quicker so yeah i think that um yeah like they're just way ahead of us in terms of what really suits kind of the internet um or the internet to come i guess for us (laughs) like on our slow internet over here but yeah like a a lot of the um the gamification things and um yeah it's all coming it's all coming they're already doing it and just you know it strikes me like the the sense of the the um the endlessness of fan content i mean in a weird way it's reminds me of uh a little bit of like what disney has done with the marvel movies right like if you want to spend your entire life pouring over tiny intricacies you're able to right there's enough there that you can um and be part of a community of people who are into it but also if you just want to show up every you know 
four years and see a bunch of explosions like on a screen you can and they'll take your money that way too and similarly it seems you know these groups it's like if you want like every once in a while a, a huge hit that that's like this like perfect sugary confection um with an amazing music video that crosses like my radar but also if you could get as invested as you could possibly want to be in this world yeah that's a really good metaphor because there are a lot of similarities with um the way that fans interact with the material and just that you know fans bring all this meaning with them even if you know the the material doesn't necessarily like <laughs> deserve it or or have enough substance there to support it mm-hmm. but fans bring it with them they create the scaffolding you know to hang the the meaning from and um yeah you can pour over um statistics uh you can get as invested in um you know music show wins or um view counts or um all these different like minutia you can um sort of spend endless endless hours uh, watching behind the scenes content watching um i mean you could just live your life just consuming k-pop content and never step outside your door um yeah or you can just wait for the hit to kind of roll through and they're both uh yeah I think most people in Korea, though, I'd say, are the the type to wait for the hit. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. No, and, and, and so there's this kind of new global fan base. And, and I guess to kind of wrap things up, I wanted to kind of end thinking about a little bit about K-pop in, in the U.S. I mean, you, you wrote kind of this, I think it's fair to say, somewhat provocative <laughs> blog post <laughs> about <laughs> BTS and about what you see as like, kind of the um without without underplaying their success which i don't think that you do you think that they've that success has been i guess misunderstood kind of in, in the general discourse and the the american music media in particular i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and about how you see i guess k k-pop um idol groups in in the kind of as they move into the u.s musical ecosystem well i think the the marvel example is really on point so yeah so bts if you follow kind of you know rolling stone or billboard any of these sort of mainstream or publications with that are aimed at kind of this mainstream readership um where their takes kind of trickle out to time the washington post um, you know, these, the New Yorker, the New Yorker that <laughs> ridiculous piece that just came out, um, you know, where they're kind of just regurgitated as, and, you know, put in these, these, um, normie outlets, um, you know, you, you will come away with the opinion or the, uh, the takeaway that BTS is the biggest band in the world, the most impactful, you know, they were at the UN, um, all of these awards, they, you know, were nominated for a Grammy. That is, that doesn't exist. Like, that exists online. Um, like, in the real world, I mean, if you have kids, maybe they can sing Butter or Dynamite, one of these songs. 
like the impact on music, the impact on popular culture is really kind of negligible. But I think the, what they have done is, is in this sort of media sphere. <laughs> like, they've created a lot of like fuss and bother with, with nothing underneath it. Um, and it, it does kind of remind me of, yeah, it's just like a, a storm with, with nothing to follow. Um, and I don't think as K-pop kind of moves into the mainstream, I think that's, we're just going to see a lot of the same kind of hype cycle of, because these outlets depend on clicks, like they, they want to get the fans reading, but I, I just don't see any impact on, on pop culture, on music, on anything, because they're not selling music. They're selling the stars. They're selling the soft power. So if anything, I was listening to um, a podcast, I think it was called Fortune Kit. I don't know if you know it, but they, they had on a guest who had just gone to see Coldplay. And Coldplay had just performed, or they had just did that, that song with BTS, um, My Universe. And um, what I found fascinating listening to this description of this Coldplay concert was that there were so many performance tells kind of borrowed from K-pop like the like they they were selling a um like a light a light band that you wore around your wrist to like raise it like um the like parts of the song and Chris Martin had these puppets that he was using as kind of a novelty thing but these kinds of things I don't know if you would have seen them at like a, a rock show you know 10 years ago but as yeah I mean maybe maybe that's what the the end result of this k-pop cross-pollination is going to be it's not it's not us adopting k-pop stars but our stars adopting the k-pop model yeah I mean that's really really interesting like what you said made so much sense is that the the, the influence functions differently because they're not selling music and or not selling music exactly the way that a lot of musicians are selling music I mean you know in this moment of like uh, increasing the importance of visual media, increasing the importance of social media, like a lot of musicians, you know, Lizzo is not just selling music either. But no, the point that, that that's something different, I mean, and that kind of fits with, you know, at least kind of uh, anecdotally, like my experience of people I know who have gotten really into this world, right? Is it's in some ways it's like, uh, their you know their music listening is replaced by a different clearly music is part of it but like a different kind of artistic activity that they engage with really strongly and it's almost like they're kind of like just like reorient towards a different type of type of of, of set of like aesthetic behaviors and i could see that like you know you could have a huge community of people engaging with that and then in some ways not that aligning in complicated ways with more traditional, like the way that the, the U.S. music industry tends to function. But but also, you know, there's that. And then there's also your second point, I think is brilliant, too, which is that it wouldn't surprise me if if these artists have, have developed really effective ways of structuring or, or performing identities online in ways that open up a variety of, you know, touch points for monetization 
I could see a lot of artists in other music economies following that. Though how you do that in a music economy that is where like the value of uh, you know certain discourses of like personal authenticity function differently, or ones where there's a lot less of the kind of like Motown style training that seems to be really an, an integral part of the, like the trainee to debut. <laughs> pipeline system the training to debut pipeline system is is really important in, in sort of the mythology of k-pop but yeah so I, I think the one of the other things that's important to keep in mind when talking about sort of the importing of k-pop into like an american context is that for the most part you know these idols they're not american they're korean right and i think um you know not not that America is like xenophobic uh, or racist. Or, I mean, well. <laughs> you know, yes, there are xenophobic and racist people. But like, you know, I feel like as a, as a society, you know, we're, you know, uh, pretty, pretty understanding of, of other people in other cultures. But, you know, here's the thing is like, can somebody born and raised in Korea really have that same kind of personal connection to um, someone, you know, from Iowa? or uh you know wisconsin who's never left the state right they're just coming from a very very different cultural context and i think that um a lot of the sort of strife and conflict in you know the k-pop community for lack of a better term um comes from the fact that you know these are foreign stars right from asia from korea um with different sets of values, different um, artistic values. And, and I think that uh, to have that kind of really idle K-pop connection, I think you're going to have to see it come from, from a domestic, a domestic group, domestic, domestic idols. Um, and I, I do think that some of these companies are trying to localize and sort of create that here. So we'll see, we'll see if it pans out in the future. Thank you.